0: Welcome to The Carlina Show, where ordinary people share their hero's journey. I'm your host, Carlina Angwin, and this is episode 11 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Veronica Slack. Veronica is the author of a recovery journal series, mother, and active member of a 12-step recovery program for over 27 years. Today's episode deals with mature subject matter that may be sensitive to some listeners. Veronica describes her unconventional childhood of being born in a mental institution to the abuse and addiction occurring in her Philadelphia home. She talks about the events that led her down a dangerous path of addiction she didn't think she could escape. But after several tries in her 20s, she did escape. And every cell of her being propelled her on a path to help others quit their addiction and find the support they need. At 45 years old, Veronica suffered a traumatic brain injury. She maintained her sobriety through the pain though, and focused on getting a GED and enrolling in Chattanooga State Community College. She recalls fond memories of spending hours in the college disability office's soundproof box, the same place where she and I sat down to record her conversation today. At the end of the episode, stick around for footage of Unity on the Bridge. The recovery event where Veronica and I met a couple weeks ago, and the event she references at the end of our conversation. For Veronica's episode and contact information, visit our new website, Carlina.net. That's C-A-R-L-E-E-N-A.net. If you are watching our conversation on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can help support the Carlina show by telling your friends about it, and giving us five stars on iTunes. One more thing, thank you, Stephen Lorca, for video editing and graphic design. Now I bring you Veronica Slack. I'm really excited to have you on the show, finally. Um, well, finally. I think we we met, was it a week ago, or maybe like a week and a half ago? On the ago. bridge. On the bridge, yeah. So, um, so it was... It was a recovery event, one of the first of its kind in Chattanooga, where people in, in recovery and family and um, just supporters came out, to, um, and, uh, and so that's where we met, and, uh, and then I invited you to come on the show, because I, I heard a little bit about your story, so yeah, so I'm glad to have you. Good. glad to be here. <laughs> well, good. Good. So um, how about you talk a little bit about like what you're doing right now and then we'll go back and, um, and you can tell you know the story of your journey. So what are you doing right now? Okay,
1: well what I'm doing
0: is I'm
1: the author of a recovery book series that provides creative long-term recovery support for any person. So with this book series right now, mostly all my time is spent in um, getting that out into the public, so mm-hmm. I currently have um, the recovery journals in Silverdale Detention Center through the chaplain in there, mm-hmm. and also at the uh, Comprehensive Volunteer Treatment Center, I also teach a class there. So we have the recovery journals in there, people are using them, and it's just, this is my life's work. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so that's pretty much what I do, I spend my time. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, how long ago did you write the, um, your book?
1: Well. I began writing the books back in probably 1999. So okay. over the course of the last 19 plus years, mm-hmm. I wrote this book series, and the series is for any person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the first publication, the first book, book one, came out in 2001.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and that was just a, a small version, and it went out there, And but then I went on to do some other things in recovery. I did mm-hmm. televised recovery, uh, and that was a wonderful experience. So. Uh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. and I continued
1: writing through the year. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you're you're in the community doing classes too. In addition. To well, the, no, remember. I just
1: do the one class. Oh, okay. And mm-hmm. what I do with that is uh, we build what I call recovery boards from the class. Mm-hmm. I take the uh, from our daily meditations. We're going cover to cover through Journal One, mm-hmm. and I take them uh, meditations, pull pull a lesson from it, mm-hmm. and then we build a recovery board. Together as a class, and I post that to the website in efforts to reach people from all walks of life. Okay. So it's really uh, so I do a summary of it for Mm -hmm. afterwards because I don't know none of the people are on film. Right.
0: right. Okay. mm -hmm. Okay. Well, really, that's cool. That's cool. And we'll get back to that, and you can talk um, more about how that all started and Mm -hmm. the relationships that you've made in the community because I know you have a lot of 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 really strong relationships and. and um how about we go back and um, and tell me um, about your your formative years and some of the events that that stick out to you in in your mind <laughs> that's, that's a lot
2: of
1: life yeah um so
0: you mean like let's just start when you were born because I I I did read um, your um, the the book that's posted online. I read through that, and um, and I think ju- your first moments in life are yes, um, yes, are very compelling. So if you could even if, even start there,
1: yes. Yeah. Well, you know the thing is, like when you're growing up. You don't really understand things that are going on. You just have your family dynamics and the way that things are, and you just think, "Well, this is how it is." And you hear stories. So all throughout my life, I would hear these stories and things in my family, and um, and but I never understood why things were the way they were. Yeah. So they used to tease me and say, "Oh, Ronnie was born in a mental hospital," mm-hmm. and like my brothers and sisters, you know, they just were kids. They just would tease and well. The truth of the matter is, I was born February 22nd, 1965 in a mental institution. I was taken from my mother and I spent like the first two years of my life with my Uncle Dominic and my Aunt Marge in Mm -hmm. Baltimore, Maryland.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So um, that, which I don't have any recollection of it, but I just believe that that is probably um, at the heart of me. Mm-hmm. you know, um, that love that was given to me because, you know, there were times throughout my life that I would see my Uncle Dominic, not often, but when he would always say, you're my baby. Mm-hmm. He would always make them references, and I always felt this connection
2: yeah.
1: uh, to him. And, uh, but I didn't really, you know, you don't have the whole story, so you don't really understand. Right. So, but at that early age, at the age of two, then my father requested my return home to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, Was you know, your mom still
0: there? or?
1: Yeah, well, my mom had, I suppose, came back and, like, all of the children. I have seven brothers and sisters, so I'm the youngest. You're the youngest, okay. And so they were in foster homes, too, so they somehow got us all back together. Mm-hmm. And um, so I vaguely remember little, like like memories, I suppose because maybe it was really traumatic for me. I just remember being carried and I feel like I remember meeting my family. I just remember this excitement Mm -hmm. um, when I was a child. Uh, But it was, you know, just not a good Mm -hmm. environment. So I just remember stories of my mother one time saying, you know, uh, I would scream and she said I screamed so loud that she put a pillow over my face to Quiet me, and mm-hmm. she said, "If I didn't control, if I didn't come out of that, you wouldn't be here because mm-hmm. nobody would stop her." Mm-hmm. So it was just like it was just very chaotic. So um, I mm-hmm. feel like in my family, it was more like I was preyed upon because mm-hmm. it was just I, you know, had issues with my uh, my older brother with molesting me, and then I was beat by my mother. So it was all these things, and again, as a kid, as a little kid. I didn't, you don't know anything different you just think that right. this is how the whole world is so I was a happy little kid mm-hmm. I just remember you know when I would go to school you know and the things that would go on in my house they didn't match up to the things that I saw
2: mm-hmm.
1: so again I think possibly because I had my uncle and my aunt who loved me mm-hmm. that that maybe sometimes you never know what that little change might right. be that right. put somebody on a different course because as horrible as things were in my house, I just didn't believe the things. Mm-hmm. So,
0: were you still seeing your aunt and uncle during this time, or you lived with them up until you were two, two and then, then, and then two you Moved w- into the, the home with your with your mom and your dad and my siblings and all your siblings. And had mm-hmm. your siblings all been together before that, or they had been in no, foster they had been in
1: foster homes. So somehow we had the family unit was getting all back together. Mm-hmm. So then I don't know if I was you know just the last right. one in that.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and then um, up until your like your teen years, are there any other um, moments or events that, that stick out to you?
1: <laughs> I have quite the memory. So there's yeah. a lot of them. So I'll just maybe tell you one or two. Yeah. So there's a lot of traumatic uh, moments. So uh, a lot of times, if I go and I tell my story, I pick, you know, certain ones because you don't want, I don't want to terrify people or because I don't have nightmares, I don't have, and the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is like something I would like to say is I love my mother. My mother's passed away now. but. Um, it wasn't until later that I would come to understand through the program mm-hmm. that um, my mother had mental illness. I knew as a child that she was sick because pe- I saw them come take my mother, mm-hmm. you know, several times. And my mother did things when I was a kid that I remember that even as a kid, it was like, that doesn't seem right, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, to do. <laughs> yes, yeah. so, so she would do things. So I understood, and even though she was doing the things she did at that time, um, Again, I didn't know anything else, but as I grew up, I understood that she was sick mm-hmm. and that, you know, th- them things happened. They were unfortunate things that happened, but I still loved my mom. Mm-hmm. So um, something that's very, very clear to me is the first time that I rem- uh, was drinking. Mm-hmm. So I was around five years old. My mm-hmm. mother used to give me alcohol and take me to bars with her while my brothers and sisters were at school Mm -hmm. so I'm you know a lot of people say oh think it's funny give a kid a little bit drink well she was Mm -hmm. gave me alcohol and um, so what I remember most um, about that was the first time that I quit Mm -hmm. and that's important to me because I feel like you know in my life I'm always no matter what comes I always find that inner strength mm-hmm. when I'm down to get back up and you know and push on, no matter how bad things have gotten in my life and that's why recovery means so much to me like I am such an advocate for recovery for me and for other people because of not only what I've been through but what mm-hmm. I know that um you know what the human being can withstand, we can become resilient it can we can turn it right so um at that age, I remember the first time I quit, and it mm-hmm. was very traumatic. You know, when you, we learn in psychology about, you know, when you're young, some of the things that people remember when it's traumatic. That's mm-hmm. why I have so much recollection of when I was young, because a lot of stuff happened. And like that, you know, being five years old, I remember because I wasn't in school. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was small, like doorknob. You know, and even at five my, years
0: old, you knew it, this isn't right or something's well, wrong or something is Well, the thing is with this. with
1: um, the drinking, mm-hmm. it was I didn't understand this is alcohol. Mm-hmm. It was my mom was drinking it and mm-hmm. she gave it to me. Right. So then, you know, I just remember getting, you know, starting to get stupid and them laughing, mm-hmm. you know, and um. So, but what I remember was the first time I quit. How old were you? Five years old, around okay. five years old, I would say. Okay. Uh huh. Um. I might have been maybe a little younger, but I'm going to say around five. Mm -hmm. Um, But she took me to the corner bar to get more alcohol, and down in Philadelphia, they have like, when you go go into a storefront, um, the corners have the bars, and they have like a little awning that comes out, and it's like a foyer, Mm -hmm. open, and on the side, so it would be, make a good corner. Mm -hmm. And I was, they wouldn't let me in because I was barefoot, not to mention that (laughs) I'm a little kid, Uh I shouldn't be in there anyway. Uh But um, so I was waiting outside for my mom, and it was summertime. And I started spinning, and I leaned over into, walked over into the like corner there, and it was a pea corner. It's where people relieve themselves. It stunk horrible, uh-huh. and I started to vomit, and it came out like a fountain. It splashed all over the walls, all over my feet. I just remember trying to get my feet backwards from it, uh-huh. but then. This sound started coming out of me. Mm-hmm. Nothing else was coming out except this. Yeah, <laughs> this I didn't know they were dry heaves. Yeah, but this horrible, horrible sound, uh-huh. and it scared me so bad. So that I didn't drink again. And that so that, made, that made it. That made till I was 12. twelve. Twelve was when I start when I made the
0: choice. Okay, so then you were five when when you started when your mom gave you alcohol, and then how many like weeks or months? Um, took place be- between then and when you had this moment outside where you were throwing up or have the dry heat
1: oh oh I don't know um just it was from what I recall uh-huh. you know I might have started drinking with her when I was four uh-huh. I just remember when I quit okay and
0: then I just remember
1: there well yeah because my parents would have parties and different things like that and we would come down and uh-huh. they would there would be beer cans and we would drink from the
0: beer cans and okay. different things like that okay so Okay, and then you quit when, so you quit when you were, yes. you were five,
1: okay. And again, I was five years old. It wasn't like, oh, I'm, yeah. know, I'm gonna decide to quit. It was that experience I had made it so anymore. that, and that sound was so traumatic that yeah. I never wanted to touch that stuff again.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
1: it made that impression on me. So whatever that behavior was of everybody giving it and all that, uh-huh. uh, the, the alcohol being around, I made that decision as a child that I don't, like what that did, so right. I'm not going to do that again. Mm-hmm.
0: And was that you? Was it all your siblings that that were drinking at that point? Um, or just I don't,
1: I, I don't recall. Yeah. You know, I don't think so because it was like I just remember doing it with my mother, and yeah. while they were at school, okay. like I was her drinking buddy. Okay. So that's that's what I remember mm-hmm. now. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um. And then you said that you started again when you were 12. And what spurred that?
1: Well, okay, so my parents, about the age of 12, divorced. Mm-hmm. So my father was a truck driver, and he was always at work. And just our home became the after-school party house. So, you know, I looked up to my brothers and sisters, whatever they were doing, and they didn't twist my arm. I just did what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I started to drink and get into
0: things. Mm-hmm. And that was around. That was around twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, what happened after? In the years after that, in your early well,
1: the uh, first consequence was when I was thirteen. Uh-huh. So I got raped by an ex-boyfriend,
0: uh-huh.
1: and that experience and uh, when that happened, that was a very that was a pivotal point for me uh-huh. because I had you know broke up with him and his brother invited me up to a party at the hou- their house, and I drank too much, I was just show off when I drank, mm-hmm. and I wasn't a big person, so I didn't need a lot of alcohol, mm-hmm. and um, when he showed up, he said he wanted to talk, he dragged me into one of the back rooms, and I couldn't I couldn't defend myself. Mm-hmm. So the next day, I just, I it wasn't close to nobody to tell anyone, so mm-hmm. I just made a promise to myself that nobody would ever, ever do that to me again taking advantage of me like that mm-hmm. and again that during that time my brother mm-hmm. was still um sexually harassing me mm-hmm. and it was it was pretty much very stressful on me yeah. because my sister was in the room and i was in the room and my brother would be drunk he would sneak into the room crawl on the floor and i felt like there was nobody i could get mm-hmm. help from um, because of the way our family dynamics were. Mm-hmm. So I wrapped, the way I protected myself was I wrapped my blankets around me mm-hmm. really tight mm-hmm. so that he couldn't get my blankets off and it would wake me up. I would wake up anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, after this incident happened, I was like so freaking liberating. Mm-hmm. Cause he came into my room and I stood up and I screamed so loud. It was like three o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. and I was like, get out, get out, get out of my room. and Mm-hmm. I woke my dad up, and he was like, ah, blah blah blah," you know, because mm-hmm. they didn't know what was happening, and right. then the cat was out of the bag. I said, "You know, I can't," because there was more instances of things that my brother did, which I'm not going to go into. Right. But yeah. it was things that just he was devious, and he was he had his own issues, right. and you know, so he was sick in his own way. So,
0: did you have? Um Anybody like at school or anybody else that um, that you could reach out to, or that you reached out to, or anything, or are you kind of just on your own? No,
1: I was pretty much on my own. Um, how did
0: you handle that? Like, what did you? Well, what did you do? <laughs>
1: I'll tell you. Um, so, I talk about these things I call the liquor box albums in my story. So, in my home, my father had an in-house bar. And I used to collect the bottles because I thought they were pretty and had no connection. It had nothing to do with the alcohol. I thought they were pretty bottles and boxes and they Mm -hmm. were decorations in my room. Mm -hmm. And I used to put them around my room. And I started writing my pain on paper and my joy. I started writing. I um, called them albums. I called them my liquor box albums because I was into rock and roll, into music and, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. But I was music illiterate. So there was no music notes. It was just paint on paper and that helped me so I started I was very creative mentally I just still always no matter what was going on I always was a happy person inside um, in spite of the things that were going on mm-hmm. and um, but then in high school when I got into uh, high school I had theater arts and that was like such a relief for me to take part in that class and the creativity and so we were given an assignment to create a mime And I came up with this mime, I got it, uh, I paired it with the song Teenage Wasteland from the rock band The Who. Mm -hmm. And in the mime, I just have, there's just a school desk there, nothing else. And the girl, um, her boyfriend breaks up with her and she's distraught and she goes on to drink all different kinds of alcohol. And She stumbles around, she smokes pot to kill the pain, that doesn't work, then she takes some pills, then Mm -hmm. she uh, snorts lines, you know, she goes through all the motions. And then she chooses to shoot drugs.
0: And this is in theater? Yeah, this
1: is in my theater arts class. Okay. I'm, fi- I'm like th- 14 years old. Okay. Okay. And so then she shoots the drugs. And then in the song, the music's like, spin- like sounds like it's spinning. Yeah. So she goes, you know, I have her going in a spin. And just at that moment, she collapses to the floor. The boyfriend knocks on the door.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And he has flowers to make up with her. Uh and then she crawls to try to reach for the doorknob and she dies
0: and this is something that you wrote Mm -hmm. okay i wrote
1: it to that to that music right so um so i wrote that and of course when the teacher saw it she was like you know would you please perform this before the entire high school in the evening Uh uh-huh so i was like Okay, you know, I was in my theater arts class, I yeah. was a young girl, so that's what I did. And one family member came, was my brother Sammy, who I'm the closest to in my family, he's closest to my age. Uh-huh. And um, it was quite the experience, um, and ironically, and I say this in my story, it foreshadowed the events in my life that was to come,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, because that was the destructive road that I was on. And I mean, I didn't realize that at the time when I right. was doing that and where all that came from. It was just, it was release. It was creative release for me.
0: Do you think your teacher or students or anybody knew what was going on at home with you at that point? Uh, no, because I had girlfriends. I, I pretty much,
1: I was popular. I was voted the most popular um, in my uh, eighth grade year. Mm-hmm. I was voted uh, most likely to succeed. I was just very inside, I was just, a, I was a happy person, I was an easy going person, I loved, inter. I just, like I didn't really get it from my family, but when I sat with you, yeah, I was like animated, and I came to life, like I really loved being around people, right. and so again, I think it was, even though I had this at home, like, I just, that wasn't like what was true for me, it was right. like I, I right. knew there was something more, something different.
0: Right, and it's, and I, I also see it, you know, it's true that somebody could be dealing with so much at home and come to school and and nobody would know or they wouldn't, you know, you you could have a friend and they, they're going through so much and yet they don't show it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just a testimony that, you know... I, I mean, everybody's going through something, but some people are going through a lot more, and you may not know it.
1: And and the thing is, uh, during that time, like with my uh, brother, I think I started to drink on the weekends, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So we would get our little bit of money together, so that was release for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a recreational drinker-drugger, you know, mm-hmm. for a number of years before it went, you know, where it went, so that, you know, youth partying that was a release for me mm-hmm. from a lot of the anxieties and the things as well because i felt accepted with my friends where things were the way they were at home mm-hmm. i mean my dad was tough he was old italian guy and he was quick with the hand to backhand you mm-hmm. and that you know was like <laughs> mm-hmm. um, for the longest time i couldn't go near my father without going mm. because it was like you didn't know if he was he would he would raise his right. voice and you're like yeah yeah. you know i would do that and then he's like what are you doing what are you doing it's like i don't (laughs) know
0: so so you wrote journal in your journals and and what no not during that time i wasn't how old were you when you started writing in your not not that's not not these these books but how old are you when you just started writing your thoughts yes that
1: was my like 12 12 12-ish now when I was a little girl, mm-hmm. i I just remember the first times that I wrote things mm-hmm. um, but they were I don't know if that was the beginnings of the creativity because I used to mm-hmm. make stories up. I used to make stories up and I used to uh, i didn't I didn't write them because I couldn't write mm-hmm. but um but I remember the first time I wrote something I wrote it was to my aunt Connie who I loved very much. she helped raise us
2: yeah
1: and um I wrote um something I Roses are red, violets are blue, I love you like a shoe or something. I just know there was a shoe in yeah, there that oh, didn't funny. really make no sense. But yeah. as a little kid, I was trying to express something right. uh, inside. That's, but yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, I used to. I will tell you, I. Um, so I used to make up stories to protect myself even from my mother. Uh-huh. So um, I, a lot of times I was getting beat because I didn't tell the truth mm-hmm. because I was afraid to tell the truth because to me if I told you the truth mom right. you're going to beat me so then I would just say things.
0: Say what you thought she wanted to hear.
1: Yeah or no it's like one time my umbrella blew inside out and it got ruined and I was afraid to say that, so I made up a big story that some guy came and he oh. took my umbrella mm-hmm. and then he made me go through the classes to find me, <laughs> yeah. but it was like I was so afraid to go home. Right. I mean, but that's when I was really little, then when I was, uh, then we separated from my mom at that age, uh, around that age of 12, so okay. then, but as, uh, in mm-hmm. high school, going back to what we were saying, um, as far as the beginning of the writing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it little, that imagination was always there, Uh and then it actually got to the, you know, coming out in my like 12, 13, my teen years when when I started to go Uh through puberty.
0: Uh Okay, so um, now, okay, so then what happened after, um, let's see, so we talked about, you wrote the play, and then you performed the play, and about how old were you then? Um, I would say pro- probably
1: I think it was te- it was 10th grade, so it's neither tenth. Okay. I think it was 9th. Um I think it was like maybe 14, it was 15 because then it was shortly after that that I met Bernie.
0: Okay. Okay. And who is Bernie?
1: <laughs> okay, so Bernie. So Bernie was um the love of my life that I met uh, and I was 15, he was 19. So I didn't see the age, you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was, here's this young man and both of us met and we came from similar backgrounds and we locked on to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bernie was an IV drug user.
0: Mm.
1: So that's how, that, that's how that whole thing began.
0: The, the addiction?
1: Yeah, well, it mm-hmm. went from I was recreational. Mm-hmm. So then I met Bernie. We fell in love, and I was 15. Mm-hmm. He was 19. And when he told me that he was a druggie and a, he was everything, he said, I'm a thief, I'm all this. Because he fell in love with me. And that time when we were sitting there, he was crying to me, telling me, You know, I'm no good for you. So that's where that conversation was going. He was like, you know, care for me so much and he wanted me to know what he was. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm 15 years old,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I'm in love, you mean everything to me, I'm not going anywhere. It was, it was already too late. It was like, I'm hooked on you, you're my, you're, you know, you're my everything. And you know, his dad had done things to him, he had been through things, so yeah, we were locked. Mm-hmm. And so I was gonna help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was gonna help him, this is what, what I was thinking. Right. And then I got pregnant at sixteen, mm-hmm. so then we moved in together, uh, and so I after I had my daughter at seventeen, I had my daughter, and Is I this Carly. Yeah, no, no, mm-hmm. Bernadette, my thirty-five-year-old. Okay. okay. So, um, so. Uh, Bernadette was my world. She was my little baby doll. You have to understand, I was six. I was 16, 17. I was a young kid. Uh-huh. Okay, so here I've got this adorable little baby uh-huh. girl who I love that I can give all the love to that I have. And she gives all that love right back to me. And uh, she was the world to me. But I went from doing absolutely nothing at 17 to being an IV drug user.
0: Uh-huh
1: and then from doing there.
0: Doing no, nothing as far as drugs? No drugs, no I wasn't drugs doing anything. I being an IV user, okay. Yeah,
1: Be, well, it's closer to what he did. Right, right, right. It's what Bernie was doing, so he mm-hmm. didn't stop. When I was pregnant, I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing, I didn't get into, I didn't start to shoot drugs until after I had my daughter. Okay. And it was, it was a conscious decision on my part because he was leaving me at home. I was mm-hmm. by myself. And it was like, I want to be a part of everything. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, well, that's what he does. And it was like, okay, well, I want to do it, mm-hmm. you know, too. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you don't know what you're doing. It's like, well, I'm trying to help you. Maybe if I understood it, you know, right. we yeah. got stupid logic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe if I did this, I could help you. Right. And that was not a good decision. Okay.
0: Yeah. And then um, why wasn't it a good decision? <laughs> well,
1: because. So between the age of 17 to 19, it just was, you know, it it was, whenever we get money, you start stealing, you start trying to find ways and means, all these different things. So I became a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And my friends were graduating from high school, and I was just becoming a junkie. Were you in high school at
0: that point? No. No, I dropped out. Yeah. I mean, I
1: dropped out of high school when I uh, was, I guess, 16 years old when I got pregnant. Okay. Uh, But... It was, while they were all progressing, I was, like, getting, starting to get strung out and do bad things, and steal, and, you know, just... And you had
0: Bernadette. That yeah, and right? I had yeah. Bernadette. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but the addiction, just the finding ways and means were just, you know, that just started to prog- progress, and then we were in cahoots together, me and Bernie, so it was like, okay, you know, we would steal together, do things together, and mm-hmm. provide for our, our problem,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, and then... Nineteen was the first time I went into detox
0: And, and did you have Bernadette at that point? Mm-hmm. Okay, so see. Okay.
1: Yeah, okay. so I had Bernadette when I was six, uh, 17
0: No, I mean like did you have custody? Of oh, her? yeah Bernadette was with me
1: the whole time Except up at the very end for when she went with my sister. And how old was she at that point? She was I think like eight years old oh, at that okay. point, but uh, at the age of um so, 19, I wound up in my first detox.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and I wound up there because I got in a car accident. I tried to rip a drug dealer off. I like came up with this plan. By this time, I started pushing Bernie to the side, and it was like I was gonna get. I needed drugs, so it was like I turned into like a monster, mm-hmm. and our love for each other got twisted, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: that got sick. But we we couldn't separate from each other. Mm-hmm. But. uh You know, but I was, I went to Trenton, New Jersey to rip a drug dealer off. I consciously made that decision that that I was sick, I was in withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And you know, on that day, I got the drugs in my hand, I didn't have no money, and they were in tinfoil. That never happens, usually, I'm not gonna tell you, they're, you know, Mm -hmm. they're just in bags, Mm -hmm. okay? Not in Mm tinfoil. And so I get it, and I hit the gas, He dives in, breaks my grip off the steering, and I struggle to get them drugs in my mouth because it's like, after all that, you know, I'm gonna get these drugs, Mm -hmm. and of course, cops come, all that stuff, and I'm in detox. After talking to the cop, they got me help because the the tinfoil wasn't, you know, you can't digest tinfoil, so I was Mm -hmm. still
0: sick. So you had the tinfoil in your mouth, too? Oh, I ate everything. I ate the
1: drugs, but, I was still sick because right. you can't, my body couldn't digest that. Yeah,
0: yeah. And did you have Bernadette with you at this point in the car?
1: Yes. Okay. All the time, to- um, or no, I don't remember.
0: I thought I read, I read um, in, in your book where she was she was with you and no car, or was that something no else?
1: that's okay. that's when I got arrested at okay. that point no Bernadette okay. was not with me
0: okay I was
1: okay. by myself because then I got put into the detox that was the first detox okay. and then I left that detox what um, fast if you want to fast forward well to, so
0: you went to the detox and then
1: um, that start that's when addiction really took off I go in I went into the detox, and then from the age of nineteen to twenty five uh-huh. that's when so the detox I became a monster no. no, I yeah. was in and out. I started that going in and out of different detoxes, and I think I went through maybe two rehabs. I left every single one of them mm-hmm. because Bernie would get money
0: mm-hmm. and
1: we just would we would right. just and so that just didn't
0: and 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 were they unsuccessful because like you were forced to go, like someone made no. you go, or, no, or did a lot you of want times, to go? No,
1: a lot of times I knew, look, I knew from yeah. the first time I did that, uh-huh. that that was not the life that I wanted. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like when yeah. I was growing up, it was like, oh, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Like mm-hmm. I knew from the second I stuck that needle in my arm the very first time, I knew I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But it was just, you're young, you just right. You just don't think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so as time as uh, t- uh, time went on, um, to that age of twenty, I was about twenty five. That's mm-hmm. that event with my daughter.
0: Okay. And how old was she at that she, point? She was about eight years old. And she was okay. Okay. And then what? He could he explain like what happened? Okay. So, <laughs> so,
1: so. so Things between 19 through 25, I just become a terror, I become a monster, I become everything that I hated. I'm a liar, I'm a cheater, I steal. Uh And I hate myself, I hate the world. The only light in my life is that little girl, my daughter Bernadette. Okay, Bernie and me, we are still sick, but we're, we're living the same place, but he's off in alcoholism and all that stuff, and I'm going out and getting money all day long daughter in tow. I took my daughter through my addiction with me. Mm-hmm. So on this day in November 1990, I was walking up the side of the road in Chester County, Pennsylvania, and I was up to no good, and uh, it was a cold November day, and the cops pulled over because I fit a description. I mean, I was wanted in a tri-state area, so they were on to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I gave them a fake name, and they took me in for questioning And at the police station there you know, they separated me and Bernadette and she started crying. And then, you know, they got me in there. Then they were, like, called the surrounding counties, came back in and said, you know, you're under arrest. We're transporting you to Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And then they let me see my daughter. And that was a pivotal moment for me because um, when a person is so strung out, and so addicted you know there's a little I still felt love from her mm-hmm. not from anything else cuz I was locked but at that moment when she saw me and she called out mommy and she put her arms out as if I was like this wonderful 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 person that she, and she just ran to me it just it just broke right through and I like just dropped to my knees and I held her so tight and it just, you know, touched me inside where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I told her, I said, Bernadette, I am so, so sorry for showing you this kind of a life. It was a horrible life that I was showing her. And I was stuck in it. I didn't know how to get out of it. I was caught in my own trap with my daughter. And um, and I hugged her, and I told her to remember that I promised her because we make promises to our kids. All oh, I'm not gonna do, it. I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna get that. But you know, I said I promised you that I would get us out of this one day, and today is that day. To hold on and to be strong, that I was coming back for. Her. I wanted her to know I was coming back for because we hadn't been separated,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that was it was inevitable. You know, they were taking me mm-hmm. and and um, and I just, I, I kind of like had that feeling inside, this is it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and then I stood up and I told them my real name, and I don't know how I remembered my sister's phone number because I hadn't talked to them in like five years. And uh, I told my sister's number so they could call her to come get my mm-hmm. daughter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then child services took my daughter mm-hmm. and they took me off to prison.
0: Um, and then how long were you in prison?
1: Okay, so they took me to uh, Montgomery County Prison, and this is kind of important because they took me there, and when I was sitting in that cell, while being so addicted and so strung out, I didn't feel the drugs anymore. I had reached a point where I was terrified of the withdrawal. So the ways and means and everything that I was doing was to keep withdrawal away. So I didn't really feel I was gonna walk around stoned. I just knew without this drug, this happens. Mm-hmm. So when I was sitting in that cell, I knew it was like this big monster was coming. And and uh but I figured I can go before the judge. The next morning, I could hold it together and, you know, you think you know everything. (laughs) you will release me on bail or my own recognizance, right? And then I can go get high and fix everything. Well, the next day, they take me from the judge and I was just starting to shake. And uh, they start to read off a whole line of charges and it hits me that I'm not going anywhere. And then I come up with a great plan and the plan is that I'm going to fake a seizure, and I throw myself on the courtroom floor, and and in my mind, this is what I need to do to get help, because I figure I'm, I don't know what else to do, and I shake all over the ground, and the sheriffs, they try to help me, they turn me on my side, handcuff me, they call the ambulance, take me to the emergency room, and then that's a whole nother thing that happens there. What's that? <laughs> Okay, I'm laughing now. It was not funny. No. Either. Okay, so um, they get me into the room. They, don't, they didn't put me with other people because at that point, I was a prisoner, an inmate. Uh-huh. So they put me in this room. The doctor was behind like, like this, like a glass wall, uh-huh. and they hooked an IV up to me. And he came over, and he said, you know, I'm going to give you something for the withdrawal. He injected something into the IV. He didn't tell me what it was. I, last thing I remember thinking was, you know, my plan's working. I mean, I wasn't really trying to be devious. I was trying to take care of myself the only way I knew how. Right. I was surviving. Mm-hmm. And um, along with conning and manipulating. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he injected something into it. And as he walked away, this I was thinking, okay, everything's going to be okay. And Suddenly a cold, burning horrible pain started ripping through my body. I sat straight up in the bed and I screamed, I won't curse. (laughs) Um, What the hell kind of crazy crap did you give me? And just then sheriffs came running in, guards and held me down. I went into an extremely violent withdrawal. And um, now during this time, uh, AIDS was an epidemic and nobody knew who had it and during this time and and this drug was making my um, legs cramp up It was making my body cramp up and like I was like my jaw was like clenching uncontrollably mm-hmm. and While well, the drugs were eating all the drug that gave me I think it was nardocaine or one of them where it was eating all the drugs out of my body and my mm-hmm. jaw was clenching down and the sheriff that was trying to hold me down over here he thought I was trying to bite him and Don't do that <laughs> And he hollered out she's trying to bite me and they grabbed me pushed me down so hard into that hospital bed I thought they were gonna break my neck they broke the heel right off of my boot and then they four pointed me what does that mean that means they strapped down all my limbs Oh, I don't want to say like a wild animal but that's really what it was like but like you know in mental health there's times when yeah. they do that so you don't hurt yourself. Well, they did that for, you know, I was out of, con- my body was out of control. Yeah. So um, they strapped me down about a half hour later, I was so weak from that drug, I couldn't even lift my fingers. And they came in and they unstrapped me and took me back to prison.
0: And that was the day, I mean, did you still have more detox to go through or that was? Uh, no, well then, <laughs> it gets a
1: little bit c- kind of crazier there now. So then, um, So then they take me back to uh, court the next day. So this is kind of where like the, you know, when you're coming off of drugs, your mind and things are going through, you know, trying to, your mind wants the drugs and it wants to do whatever it has to do to have them. So they take me back to court the next day. Now there's totally different person going to court this day, (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay? Back then they used to put you back in your street clothes and my coat had a belt on it that was the same color. You would never probably have be able to do that today. Mm-hmm. Um, but they put me in a holding and cell. And when they put me in the holding cell, the only thing I could think of was I needed to get out of there. I needed to get high. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like, a, a, I told you I had quite the imagination. So I came up with a plan. I always, <laughs> I always have a plan. And my plan of escape was that I was going to call the sheriff back to um, light my cigarette. And when he turned to walk away, I would take my belt and flip it into the door jamb. And I would just push. I was in street clothes. So I would just push the door open and walk right out of there. It sounded good. He comes back. He lights my cigarette. I flipped the belt perfectly into this lock. And when I go to push the door open, it slides out. So now I'm panicking. And as I'm panicking, I'm looking around the room thinking I'm so intelligent that I start thinking about the construction of the building and I start thinking if I can get into the ductwork, I can get out of here. Never even thinking, yo, if sheriff see you doing that, they could shoot you. I, I had no logic. Then as I'm looking around, I notice in the bathroom above the toilet that there's a light fixture with a lip on it. I climb up on the toilet, I take that belt and I wedge it up underneath and I pull, pull, pull. Sawdust, everything's coming down and I can see above that there's like a hole above the light I get it pulled down and then that I think I can get into which now today there was no way I mean I guess I could have dig and done I don't know <laughs> but so they come the sheriff comes I jump down I act like I wasn't doing anything and he takes me back in front of that same judge so now <sighs> the, the judge that I faked the seizure on the day before I don't know if they knew or not I'm sure other people had antics. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But now I'm standing in front of this judge and I hope you can get this picture. I'm standing in front of this judge. I think I was, what was I, 25. My hair is in knots. I've had a big head of hair. Um, my clothes are all disassembled. I've got a broken boot. And I'm telling you, I know I had sawdust all over me. <laughs> I could cry thinking about it because I have no idea how that affected that judge seeing a human being like that. Yeah. But he looked at me and he saw right through me and he uh he read my charges and then he stipulated me to Eagleville Hospital Treatment Center. Mm. Um, so I couldn't leave. There was no bail. There was nothing. It was, I was going back to jail. So, okay. So I still had one more plan of escape. (laughs) And now because I knew they were going to transport me. Mm -hmm. So now I thought, well, even though my hands and my feet are shackled to a belt, they had put a leather belt around your waist. I thought that when I got outside that I could drop to the ground Roll underneath one of the vehicles and that they wouldn't notice that I was gone. And when I got outside, it was the first moment of sanity that I had because as sick as I was for drugs, I looked around, there was like maybe seven, there was guards and sheriffs taking me back. Um, And I noticed that they had guns, you know, and I just had that moment of sanity and I just I walked the walk and I went back to jail and then it was about two weeks later that um, they took me to that rehab Mm -hmm. at that Eagleville Hospital and um, do you want me to go on? Oh yeah. Okay, so they take me there and um, when we get there they open the van door and I get out, they take my handcuffs off, they shut the van door. They get back in the van and they just drove off and left me standing there. At the hospital? Outside the hospital, right there, with my broken boot, okay? I had no clothes, I only had the clothes on my back, which back then I had these flowered pants that were popular, (laughs) I did flowered blue jeans and um, a broken boot. So, um, and the first thing I thought was, I'm free, I can go get high. Uh And the next thought I
0: had, but this, was, this had been after two weeks, After right? two weeks. So you had already been through the detox and everything. Yes. So okay. now,
1: I don't know if it was because I had two weeks without any chemicals in my body,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but there was another thought. And the next thought after I can go get high, I'm free, uh-huh. um, was I could walk through the doors right there. And the thought was I had no idea what was on the other side of them doors because I never made it through a treatment program. Mm-hmm. but I knew what was waiting for me on the streets of Philly. Mm-hmm. I knew them horrors of addiction. And um, I, through the grace of God, I walked through them doors. And, and um, this is why for recovery and institutions, I have such a great respect for them because that institution, they uh, gave, to me, this was a big deal. They gave me a room to share with uh, another person. They gave me clothes. I do not have no clothes, I have nothing. They gave me shoes, a voucher for that medical treatment, dental care, I mean they wowed me, and then that's also where I got introduced to um, therapy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I had the um, my therapy with a one-on-one with a counselor, which I enjoyed, and then the group therapy, that was where I had a really big breakthrough, mm-hmm. which was, do you want to hear? Yeah. Okay. So um, I had never been in any kind of group therapy, so in group therapy, uh, it was a big, it's a big rehab, Eagleville. Uh-huh. So they had us all, we would sit in a big circle and they would send a couple of counselors in and we would have discussions. And, but I noticed that they, you know, you get onto things. It seemed like they went around the room and they would pick somebody and they would pull them out of their shell. They would like put them on the hot seat, the hot spot or whatever. And um, so I was like Miss Goody Two-Shoe. I followed all the rules and do everything that they would tell me to do so I wouldn't be one of them people and one day there was a counselor there, her name was Sandy and uh, they started around that circle and now when I was in group I went from probably looking like I was about 50 to about 14 and my hair was long and I literally sat in group like this. Mm-hmm. I'm probably sure it looked like a wild animal. <laughs>
0: Because but you I, didn't really. You didn't want them to call no, on you. you no, I just was.
1: It was just like you know. I hit. I just would you know look at you, look up through my hair, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so Sandy stopped at me and she said, "Veronica, let's talk to Veronica." And like inside, I was like, "Oh my god!" And she said, "Veronica, I don't know where it happened, how it happened, or why it happened." but somewhere, somehow, somebody told you it wasn't okay to think. And her words were like a, like a punch to my stomach that knocked me straight back into childhood to be uh, humiliated by my mother in front of all my brothers and sisters only now it's in front of this whole group. But that's not what happened because then she said um, we decided that from now on you're going to wear your hair up and we're going to give you a voucher for dresses. And I was like, well, that's not that bad. You know, like they didn't do anything. You know, mm-hmm. I was just used to so much trauma and mm-hmm. making my own issues as well, that that was like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And I went and I pulled my hair back. And when I pulled my hair back, as soon as I went out around people, I was like, oh, like I was looking for my hair to hide in my hair. I realized you can see my face and my expressions because I was probably giving a lot of dirty looks and stuff too to people you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know but I could see other people as well mm-hmm. and you know uh, and then I got the dresses and the dresses were professional dresses that I picked I never had a real job but when I put the dresses on they made me feel smart and they made me feel pretty so now I went back to group and I've got you know the dresses on <laughs> I'm sitting up straighter I'm smiling and they come in, I'm like, okay, I'm this thing now, you know, and they come in, I'm like, okay, that's and they start around that circle and Sandy stops at me again. And she says, Veronica, how are we feeling? <laughs> I'm like I'm like you know, it's having a positive effect on me, the changes, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was clear that Mm -hmm. that was. And then she proceeded to pull me the rest of the way out of the shell, and she said, from now till you leave, you will be this group's leader. And to me, it was like, it wasn't good news to me because I had a voice, I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know how to um, be a team, pull anybody up on behaviors, uh, in a productive way, be like, hey, you know, it's going to be, you know, and mm-hmm. like I had no skill on coping or dealing with people, mm-hmm. and uh, and I didn't know how to be there for anybody because part of being that group leader was, you know, when people wanted to leave, you, and you know, you had to step up to the plate and mm-hmm. be there for people, but I did what they told me to do, and I flourished, and um, and I found, I began to find a voice,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then, um, but that's when kind of mm-hmm. after that happened, then things went, you know, no matter how good things are going, you know, life happens, and then they call me into the office, and as soon as I go in the office, I know that um, something's wrong. Sandy's in there. There's a couple staff member members there, and she's got a horrible look of distress on her face, and then she comes over to me. She puts her hand on my shoulder, and she says... Veronica I want you to stay calm and just know we're going to be here for you. And then she proceeds to tell me that Bernie, the man that I love, was found dead, laying in the streets of Philadelphia, of a drug overdose. And I just I just collapsed into a pool of sorrow. I hadn't cried. Oh my gosh. I hadn't had no feelings. Mm-hmm. And we were in we were in group telling me, they were saying, it's okay not Uh to cry because we thought there was something, I thought there was something wrong with me because I couldn't cry, well when I got that news I just, Uh I cried for days. Um, And they were there for me Uh and they made the arrangements for me to go to his funeral and now when I went to that funeral, um, we were not welcomed in our hometown because we were thieves, we had bad reputations. And, um, and I didn't care, I was going to go say goodbye to the man that I loved. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I pulled my hair back in that ponytail, I put that dress on, and I walked into that funeral home and, you know, people just moved out of my way. And I walked up to that casket and I knew that that would be the last time I would ever lay eyes on him. And when I looked at him laying there. I the room might as well have been empty. I laid my head down on his chest, I ran my hands through his hair, and I told him how much I loved him. And then I told him that I was so sorry, that we got messed up like we did, but I was really sorry mm-hmm. that he didn't make it out alive. And then I promised him that I would stay being sober for both of us, that I would find a way not to live this life anymore, mm-hmm. and then I went right back to that um, rehab, mm-hmm. and I finished that program.
0: How long were you in the program?
1: At Eagle? I'm going to say I was probably there. I th- might have only been 60 days, you okay. know. So um, I, I I don't remember, mm-hmm. um, but probably that's I'm thinking that's probably what it was. Maybe 60, 90 days.
2: Okay,
1: and. Um, so now the thing is, when I left that uh, program, the day I left, I met with Sandy, and I told her how scared I was. So you know they have aftercare. I had all them plans, but I, I was going to go live with one of my older brothers, the one I'm close with, my brother Sammy, mm-hmm. and um, and go to meetings. And Sandy said, you know, I told her I was scared. She said, all you have to do is, you know, go to meetings, pick a program, and build a foundation. You'll be all right.
0: And go to NA meetings. Yeah, go okay. to meetings. Well,
1: mm-hmm. see, she um, she told me that I could go to any meeting. She said you can, you know, you have to pick a program. So whether it was NA, AA, it was a. I needed to go to a twelve step program. Mm-hmm. Okay. And because of my history, I could go to either.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she said, um, she told me, she said, when you raise your hand, you say, "I'm an alcoholic with." No, she said, "Um, you say you're a drug addict with a desire not to drink." That's what she told me, and that's mm-hmm. what I did. So I went right from, um, well, first off, when I left there, I had, like, I was terrified because um, I, like, I just went right into a transition because I had been introduced to a support system that helped me, Mm -hmm. and now I was leaving it. Where did you go to live? Okay, so I was going back to Bucks County to my brothers in Andalusia to Mm -hmm. live. That Mm -hmm. was in Eagleville, so that wasn't close. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had to build you know, there was an abundance of recovery available to me, but I was the one that was going to have to make that effort. Mm-hmm. So I was scared because I didn't trust myself, mm-hmm. okay? Because I had all this with me, and and uh, so, but what I did was what they said to do. I went right from um, that rehab to a meeting, and when I went into the meeting, I raised my hand and I said, I'm an alcoholic, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm a drug addict with a mm-hmm. desire not to drink, mm-hmm. and they said, welcome to Al-Anon. I went to the wrong <laughs> program. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So you know Alanons for the yeah. families yeah. and friends of alcoholics, but they were very kind <laughs> and after the, they let me stay and after the meeting they told me where a 12-step meeting was that was a better fit.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So the next day my brother took me to my first 12-step meeting and that meeting, I, he drops me off and it's a freaking house and i'm like what is this and i walk in and it looks like a hangout it looks like somebody's hangout there's sofas and chairs all around the perimeter of the room i can smell coffee in the kitchen there's like two or three people there and i just sat right down and within about 15 minutes that entire room was jam-packed full this is the northeast there's a lot of people the whole room's full of people the floor is covered with people all the way out into the kitchens with people, all the way out the door onto the porch. It wowed me how many people were in recovery. Uh-huh. And then at break, I'm st- I was standing outside smoking a cigarette, and uh, the lady comes over. Lady comes over to me, and I'm looking straight at the ground, like I'm oh, freaking scared. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, "Hi, my name's Dorothy. Are you new?" And I said, "Yeah, my name's Veronica. I just got out of rehab yesterday, and they told me to come to meetings." And, uh, and she said, yeah, that's what you do. You come to the meetings. We'll get your phone list, and you get connected in. And, uh, and I said, well, they told me to get a sponsor, too. Will you sponsor me? It was like, you're fair game. You talked to me. Yeah. OK, <laughs> so you are the sponsor thing. I didn't have no idea what a sponsor was. I just know uh-huh. that's what they said. So this lady, she, and she laughed, and she said, yes, I'll sponsor you. So, um, so the thing is, uh, during this time, I was still uh, in transition and I uh, was going to the meetings but I got hit with an obsession and I went and I used. Mm-hmm. So the thing was when I went and I used I just remembered that the people in the room said keep coming back no matter what mm-hmm. and that stuck in my head so I went back to the meetings and I said you know I got high mm-hmm. and they said well did you call your sponsor and I'm like no. And they said, well, no, you got to want what your sponsor has. you work with your sponsor, they'll guide you through the steps, they'll help you. So it was some couple weeks later, I was at a meeting and this lady walks into the meeting, she's got hot pink spandex on, she's got bleach blonde hair, tall, tall woman, and when she walks past me, she has a keychain with a bunch of tags and keys on it that kind of makes like a jingle noise and it represents, the tags all represented a lot of time and I was attracted to her recovery, and I wanted what she had. Mm -hmm. Like that was like, whoa, I'm thinking everybody has to be like a nun, you know, like there's no more fun, and here she walks in, I'm like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So I go outside after a break, and I start talking to her, and um, we're still friends today, Uh and um, uh, I start talking to her, and she, um, as we're talking, she says, um, what did you say your name was? I said, Veronica. She says, Veronica, she says, I've been talking to a Veronica on the phone. It's me, Pam. And I'm like, see, I had been talking to a lot of people. I just didn't know who anybody was. Yeah. So here we had already connected. Uh-huh. I asked her to sponsor me and she said, yes. She took me to her house and it just so happened that at her house, there was recovering people there all the time and uh-huh. it was just what I needed. Yeah. But I was still in this transition and I was missing Bernie, I was grieving him and I just hit a place where I didn't want to be here without him. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so I decided to go to Philadelphia and buy the drugs that he bought and join him. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, join,
0: what do you mean by joined, join him, like,
1: just, I didn't want to be here. I felt like he left me in a rat race and I just mm-hmm. didn't want to be mm-hmm. on this place, in this, uh, right. without him.
2: Yeah.
1: And when I got down there, I did the drugs, I fell out and the junkies that were there in the shooting gallery took care of me and they helped me. Mm-hmm. And when I came to, I bought more of them drugs and I went home.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And The next day, it was June 8th, 1991, there was a knock on the door and it was a guy that I had been in rehab with who had been taking me to some meetings. He stopped by to take me to a meeting. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, yeah, I'm just gonna go take a shower. I'll be out in a couple minutes and I was lying. I was going to do them drugs Mm -hmm. and well this is where you find out that your higher power has a plan and he doesn't ask you for permission you know and I did them drugs and I fell out in the bathroom and at that precise moment the phone rang and that guy answered the phone. It was my daughter who wanted to talk to me and he said that he was already suspicious of my behavior, so he knocked on the bathroom door and when I didn't answer, he broke the door down and he said I was laying there dead and he panicked and he called another recovering person that lived right down the street and then they called the paramedics. Now both of them tried to resuscitate me. They said my eyes were wide open, I had no pulse and I wasn't breathing. And, um, and I will tell you that I did have an experience with my higher power that I will never forget That is very sacred to me. But that, in, that experience, it only reinforced that one way or the other, I have a road that I have to walk here. And uh, the paramedics came, they administered that drug that mm-hmm. eats all the drugs out of your body, <laughs> mm-hmm. okay? and as I was coming to it was like coming up through a pool and the first thing I said to everybody in the room was get the F out I didn't use and then the police and the paramedics that were there they said that by law they had to take me to the hospital because of what had just happened there Mm -hmm. so they took me to the hospital and the staff people there tried to talk sense to me, and I didn't want to hear anything. I did what I normally do. Mm -hmm. I signed myself out AMA, Against Medical Advice, Mm -hmm. and I went home. And when I got home, I was so angry, I felt so lost, and I was walking past, my brother lived on the third floor, and the window was open, it was June, and when I walked past the window, I overheard, that recovering person talking to the guy from, he was a newcomer, the guy from the rehab was a newcomer too, and he was pulling him up on his behavior. He was saying, you need to be hanging out with the men, not the ladies in recovery. And then he said, so that you can recover. And then he said, you need to back off from my sister and let her recover. And he called me his sister and it touched me because I didn't feel like anybody's sister. And, um, I felt like a piece of crap that -hmm. couldn't get it together, that just kept messing up. Mm -hmm. And when he got done with that guy, he came up into my brother's apartment, he got a hold of me in the living room. And the way he spoke to me, he spoke to me in a way like somebody who had been through, could only do that had been through a living hell. Mm -hmm. And he said, Veronica, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you effing died today. And it's a miracle that you're standing here. And I'm telling you that if you don't start working with your sponsor, making more meetings, and surround yourself with recovering people, you're gonna be back out on the streets using again. And you might not be lucky enough to make it back in here. And at that moment, I don't know, something clicked, like a light went on. Mm -hmm. And I um, I could feel, I could sense, the unconditional love that was being extended to the guy from the rehab and to me. Uh And it was that that reached and touched inside of me. And nothing was ever the same because from that moment forward, that um, pushed me head head on into recovery. Uh And I became willing to do anything and everything that I needed to do to be a recovering person. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that was the pivoting point, that unconditional love, it broke that chain, Mm -hmm. that last chain, that cause, I was in that transition, I was trying to find my way, Mm -hmm. you know, it was Mm -hmm. like, I had that taste of recovery that, Mm -hmm. you know, that there was another way. Mm -hmm. But like, sometimes people think like, okay, well I'm in rehab, everything's gonna, and then they get hit with life, and Mm -hmm. all them things, and living. And, um, but I held on and through that that transition, Mm -hmm. and you know, people telling me to keep coming back and then that family that I never had, that family was that 12-step recovery that Mm -hmm. the people, even in the people in the rehab, that was the family that was reaching to me, that I had been looking for, that I had not had throughout my lifetime that good and that good direction. Mm -hmm. And from that moment forward, everything changed, nothing, Nothing. I mean, inside it just blew everything apart, wow. and that and that started that road of
0: recovery. Mm-hmm. Wow. And how old um, was uh, Bernadette? at this point.
1: Okay, so now, as I uh, I got, I went through the process to get Bernadette back, because mm-hmm. I signed custody to my sister, mm-hmm. and then through that process of, I think it was like maybe a six month process, my daughter came, I had to go through the whole ropes, you know, mm-hmm. they from visits, to a couple hours, to half the day, to overnight, mm-hmm. so that was like a six month period, and to have her come back, she was uh, eight, nine, eight, nine years old. Mm-hmm.
0: And were you living with your family or with your brother? No, no. So
1: part of that um, shift, Mm -hmm. you know, was I got a sponsor. Mm -hmm. You know, I took them suggestions that that guy said to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I had my sponsor, but I started working with her, with Pam. Mm -hmm. Then I moved in with Pam, and Mm -hmm. then it was like... Mm-hmm. I had 24 hours a day, I had recovering people around me, I made more meetings, you know, I got my daughter back, I got a job, I got my CDL, like I just started, then I got my, within like six months, I got my own place, mm-hmm. so me and Bernadette, were we had our own home and it was like, I was like, I turned into like super mom mm-hmm. and it was like, you know, I was happy to be alive, I was happy to be, you know, um, clean mm-hmm. and sober and I was, you know, just happy to be living life Mm -hmm. and uh so I went through all my um parole my probation it was like you know doing everything that they told me to do Mm -hmm. like it was like nothing to follow Mm -hmm. now that I had direction and I understood you know that this is the road that I want to be on and now I'm willing to do all these things to stay on this road Mm -hmm. and
0: uh is that when you started to write your book
1: no so um so, in this process um, of, uh, you know, working with my sponsor, you know, they started me, you know, we journal, we write our steps, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and I started, so I went from uh, Pam back to Dorothy. I had Dorothy, Pam, then I went back to Dorothy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I started writing all kinds of stuff. So I wrote a screenplay. <laughs> I wrote a screenplay called Death Warrant. Okay, mm-hmm. it was the action, female action, dark, <laughs> action hero um, who fall, you know, falls in love, blah, 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 blah. It was good. <laughs> so I wrote this screenplay and I took it up to New York to show to someone. And um, when I, well actually the way it happened was I went up to New York and I, I they wanted me to do a, uh, monologue Uh so um, because I started to you know do things and so I just wrote I'm like I'm gonna write my own monologue and I wrote it. and I wrote this Uh and what happened was uh, they liked it Mm -hmm. they were like you know where's the rest of that story at? and I'm like oh (coughs) I've got it at home I was there was no story it was (laughs) I just wrote the monologue yeah but I said oh it's at home Well, could you bring it back up? We'd like to see it. So, of course, I went home, and I wrote Death I wrote this whole thing, and I'm like, you know, the set, everything. Uh, And I was going to take it back up there after to somebody else Mm -hmm. to show it to them. And my sponsor went with me. Mm -hmm. And we took the train up to New York City from Bucks County, Mm -hmm. well, from uh, Trenton.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, on the way up we were going over some step work. And when she was going over my step work, she kept noticing these little writings I had in there. And when she read them, she said, these are really good. You should write a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what started it right there, because um, I bought an empty book. And I started putting all them little writings in there. And I carried that little book with me. And in 2001, that's when I self-published that book. Mm -hmm. I don't share this often. Mm -hmm. But in 2001, after, right after I, um, not even a month after I published that, my sponsor um, came, found out she had cancer of the throat and on her deathbed, okay, I had published that book and I went while well, she was like in a uh, coma, whatever that, mm-hmm. you know, that induced mm-hmm. where when they're in hospice and I sat. At the side of her bed, reading that book to her, wow. and it was just one of them moments in life where, you know, I know I knew that I was losing her, and but she had sparked so much in me, you know, and then to actually have that book there, to it was like, hey, see, I took mm-hmm. your suggestion, you mm-hmm. know, and I I got it up into an actual book, mm-hmm. and um, but. Yeah, I don't share that often, but that was, that was, um, so that's how that got to be, and then I kept writing, and then from there it was, uh, I was on fire. See, I didn't tell you this, but um, when I was writing that book, started to write that, I had this, I was writing a lot of different things, but I was uh, on fire to connect with people who were struggling from all walks of life, like you just couldn't put me in a box in one fellowship. Because it was like, I saw other people falling through the cracks. I saw other people struggling. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that came from when I was a kid, a little kid, my mom, because I would tell my neighbors all our business, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I go to the house and I would mommy beating me, you know? It was, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wasn't allowed off the steps. Yeah. So I had to sit on the front steps in the city. And you will be surprised in my house, Oh, my father called every race a name. They were not, they were, you know, this, they were that, they were this, they were that. But as a kid, I sat on the steps, and I saw, we lived in a mixed neighborhood. So I saw all the people, I saw them smiling, I saw them in pain, I saw people crying, I saw people laughing. Mm -hmm. And I observed, I was a little kid, so Mm -hmm. I'm sitting on the step with my imagination, and I'm watching... You know, life happened. I watched a dog get hit by a car. You know, I one morning I came out and there was, uh, the lady across the street, um, her name was, uh, I called her Chopper. I guess her name was Chops, but I thought that that's what it was. You know, the two ladies over there, they taught me how to dance. So we used to dance in the street. And one morning when I was sitting on the steps, I noticed blood, fresh blood. And I had never really saw fresh blood and there was things in it. And I just remember looking at it. And then I just remember seeing later chopper with you know uh white things around wrapped around her both her arm her mm-hmm. wrists and I wouldn't kind of make that connection to later in life mm-hmm. you know but I saw all of life happening mm-hmm. so I saw a lot of pain a lot of struggles but I saw a lot of happiness and I saw everybody of every color going through it
2: mm-hmm. so
1: whatever I heard I told you in the house I didn't believe because it didn't match right you know when I went out around you you were happy you were nice to me so it was like I like you mm-hmm. you know it was like I was getting more attention from you and love and kindness than I was getting in my own household
2: mm-hmm.
1: so now when I was writing these book the books now I was clean and sober at this time so the books I don't think there's even a page in there that mentions drugs. It's about the human condition. Mm -hmm. So that's why the books are for any person. So as I was writing them, it was... um, The mindset was one page has nothing to do with the next page as I'm writing them. Mm -hmm. And the mindset is I have a whole fellowship of healthy, good direction being given to me. Amidst my twisted thinking, and that's what came out in the books. But when I was writing it, I wasn't writing it with any intent of it was my private mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like ah, blah, blah 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 blah, you know, God mm-hmm. blah, blah 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 blah, life, mm-hmm. you know, or you, I'm mad at you, you know. It mm-hmm. was, you know, so uh, I just knew that that's what I was doing, and and um, but the um, you know, that twist was getting in there, that health of you know, there's better thinking. You know, there's solutions and all that came out. So, um, but even though I was still writing, I was one. Uh, just I was on fire, and you're to, wanting to share that knowledge yeah. with other people. So what happened was, um, like I said, I you couldn't put me in this box with just one fellowship. It was like there's people out here. Mm-hmm. So I came here to this fellowship because I need to be here because I need this help. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole world out there that needs you. <laughs> Well, I was just like, no, man, I just, you, I was def- I'm defiant. It's mm-hmm. like, you tell me to stay in that box or you say, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that guy over there, I'm, I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do. And that's what happened. So then I designed this um, 12-step program called RTC 12-step ministries. And it was for all people from uh-huh. all walks of life. Then I went, now I was a CDL truck driver at this time. I was driving a limo and my boss allowed me to use the big limo bus to build a transportation system to pick recovery houses up. So I built a whole uh, system and I had other people. Uh, one of the churches gave me a big bus. And so we had this bus and I designed the bus route for them, and we went by and we picked the recovery house. I played music. And because my idea was, uh, I didn't focus on we are sick. I focused on it was always like a school kind uh-huh. of an atmosphere. I was always teaching you. The RTC, it's like, here's your homework, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. And and so that kind of happened. And what happened was, I don't know how this happened, but somehow I got it televised for three years in the Bucks County area. So now I got a transportation system. I have a $100 a month, uh, a week budget, because my husband and I, you know, it was like, I wasn't going asking people for money. It was like, I'm going to do this. Uh-huh. So I just don't see them barriers. It's like, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. So I had it on uh, televised for three years through the public access channel. The people who filmed it, um, they just came on board. Like, they just came there. We're going to help you out with this. And they filmed it. And um, I still have them. So we made DVDs out uh-huh. of them to give to other people. And... And so I did that for the three years, and then we wound up with other meetings, and of course, um, <laughs> one of the things when um, you're working with recovering people, with addicts, with people who, they're not being paid, okay, you, help comes however you help, and you get you take the help. But you're not an entity structured with money. It is, we're going to do this. So, you know, people don't show up, people relapse, things happen, and it got too heavy. Mm-hmm. But I still continued to write, and I stayed in recovery, and I took the to making the DVDs and sending them out. Because it just got too big. It, it just got too big for me to be able to handle. Mm-hmm. So I made, during that time, I had made that commitment that when I was in my 50s, mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was saying. But oh. I made, I'm like, God, you know, I, when I'm, oh, you know, I'm imagining, oh, I see myself writing, uh-huh. and editing, looking out a window, and uh-huh. I see water. You know, uh-huh. with my mind, I'm this missing right. writer, <laughs> and when I'm 50, God, you know, this is the plan. Uh-huh. And... you ladies, but we're closing. Like okay, oh. I, mean, I know. There's a okay. clock in here. We used to have one, and it... Oh. The can we, we have so we can five minutes out. to wrap up? Okay, well, yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Okay, so where were we? So
1: we finished up in that room, and now we're
0: out here. Yeah, we just figured we'd get, you know, a new new scenery. So, yeah, okay.
1: Okay, so I think we were uh, finishing up with uh, RTC, and uh, that disbanded, and I continued on in recovery. Mm -hmm. So then uh, after 9-11, while I had met my husband uh, in recovery, my husband is not a recovering person. He's just a regular person, and he's a wonderful man. And I've been married for... Uh, 20, 23 years, 24 years now, mm-hmm. To him, I met him, uh, so uh, after I had about a year and a half clean, mm-hmm. so we had a daughter, and then in after 9-11, in 2003, um, we decided to move to Tennessee mm-hmm. to finish raising our daughter, mm-hmm. and so we moved down here, I got plugged into the program because the program I attend, the 12-step program I attend is all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, so I got in Plugged into that, we started our trucking company because uh, my husband and I are both CDL drivers. And a, mm-hmm. for what da- years, I what a tractor trailer. That's my dad. Twenty-three years. That's what my dad does. Yeah. <laughs> and We had our own trucks, and it was wonderful uh, mm-hmm. for me and him. And so we started our business down here, got our daughter into school, and things were good. Mm-hmm. And which daughter? Uh, Carly. Okay. My okay. youngest daughter. Okay. So who just now turned twenty-one, and she's the one who's helped me with the books. Okay. So uh, and so we moved down here. And things were good, but no matter how good things are, good mm-hmm. or bad, life happens. Mm-hmm. And in 2000 and March 2010, I was on a job site in Brockwood, Tennessee, with my tractor-trailer. I had a dump truck, dump tractor-trailer. Mm-hmm. And the, the part of the tra- uh, trailer was coming down, and the store that weighed about 1,000 pounds swung backwards and smashed my head against the side of the trailer. I broke, I had a hard hat on, or so else I'd have been killed instantly. So I broke the bones in the left side of my face, split my face in half, and uh, I wound up with uh, five titanium plates in my face and brain damage, and lost a lot of my physical uh, abilities, and I became disabled. And as a family, as a family we lost our business, we lost our home, and we were left in financial ruin. And we held together tight, and no matter how bad things got, I knew I was still breathing, and I hung on to my recovery, and I stayed clean and sober through it, Mm -hmm. and uh, because I think, you know, uh, it it was such a traumatic event, and so many bad things that were happening, but it wasn't only happening to me, it was happening to my whole family. We were Mm -hmm. all going through it, Mm -hmm. and during that time now, just before that accident, I was uh, scheduled to take my GED. Mm uh, so I went and I took that test, and when I took that test, even though I, um, all of my, like, uh, my mind and my body, things were not in sync, but mm-hmm. my brain was still working. It just wasn't in touch with everything else, mm-hmm. but, um, but I took that test, and when I got done taking that test, I came up with a plan of recovery and of, of, from my accident, and I designed uh, my own therapy. And the third B, the plan was that I was going to become a college student. Mm-hmm. So I got with the disabilities office right here at Chat State
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, together, we made all the accommodations for all my injuries. They had programs, all different things to help me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, in between all of my classes, I lived in that room we were just in, that mm-hmm. classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I spent most of my time in there because they just had, it was just, it was just a wonderful, it was a good experience in spite of everything in my life was falling down around me, it was collapsing at this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, financially, everything. And this institution just, I, uh, just really shined. How old and, was Carly at this time? Uh, Carly was, I think at that time she was uh, like, I think she was like about 14. Because then what happened was during this time at the age of 15, she tested into this college. And we became, she came, to, we went to school at the same time here. So we got to spend that uh, like three semesters together. And that brought us really close together as mm-hmm. a family. Mm-hmm. And then um, I graduated. I went back to work. And then in 2014, after Carly graduated, mm-hmm. we were on our way to visit a college in South Carolina, and we got hit head on. Oh, wow. Carly was okay, but I regressed in my injuries, in my brain injury. Mm-hmm. And so I came back to school again. And then in 2015, we were on our way here again, and in 153, we got hit from behind. Mm-hmm. Carly was okay, I regressed farther. And now by this time, I'm really upset because I I, and I go into the meetings and I'm sharing. I am so distraught that this wasn't how I planned for my life to be. Going into the NA meetings? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, was it was AA because I went. I so I went to narcotics. I don't Mm -hmm. uh, NA up north. In the south, I chose to come to AA. Okay. Okay. Originally, it was NA down here, but AA was more like what I was accustomed to. Okay. Gotcha. So there was that. That mm-hmm. transition, but Right. it's twelve steps. Right, twelve steps. Yeah. It's recovery. Mm-hmm. So, um, but uh, so uh, in two. Th- so I'm in the meetings and I'm sharing, and someone comes up to me in the meeting afterwards, and they're like, "Veronica, I'm so sorry these things are happening to you, but this is what I did when I was disabled because I just, I just didn't know what to do with myself mm-hmm. because I'm like, this can't be happening again. Like three. I mean, I was pretty much devastated. Mm-hmm. So. I go home, and I don't want to take the suggestion that he gave me, you know, that he got into little projects around the house. That's what he said. And um, so I sit down in my little office, and I write a letter to God, and I pour my heart out, and I cry. I wind up on a ball, in a ball on the floor, crying. Mm -hmm. And then when I get done crying, I get up, I take that letter, I put it on my desk, and I take that suggestion, because really, that's that's how I learned to live my life. Mm -hmm. It helps me. Like, people help me, and I help other people. It always goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. So I start going through little projects, and I come across a box. And when I open the box, there they are, all my books and manuscript, and that one uh, book one that needs to be revised. Mm -hmm. And it totally overwhelms me. So I go back to the meetings, and I'm like, I wrote Mm -hmm. all these books, and Mm -hmm. I don't have the patience or the the willingness to do all this work. Mm -hmm. And there was someone in that meeting who I have such a great deal of respect for in recovery. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people know him in this area. Um, And he he talked to me and he encouraged me. He said, Veronica, all you have to do is start that first page and the rest will come to you. Mm -hmm. So I went home, I took that suggestion, and I started that first page and it opened the door for me to refocus on my heart's desire to connect with people who struggled from all walks of life Mm -hmm. in a big way. I remembered that commitment I made to my higher power all them years ago mm-hmm. that when I was in my 50s that I would edit the books I was now in my 50s mm-hmm. right then I also now had enough education that I could edit the books I would have help from some help from my daughter Carly mm-hmm. and uh, so I dove in I took book one, I revised it with pictures of me communicating from bridges and crossroads in life mm-hmm. so I'm talking to you
0: <laughs> I'm talking to
1: God in the pictures or I'm talking to I'm contemplating life mm-hmm. and then I, took book one, and I divided it into volumes. Mm -hmm. I thought about all of my years in recovery. Mm -hmm. I've been here 27 years, at that time it was like 22, whatever that Mm -hmm. was, and I picked the very simple things that have been helping me, Mm -hmm. and I built them into recovery journals that other people could Mm co-write. So then Carly and I edit the books, we did all the photography, we published them, and started the uphill road and it's an uphill road to get them into circulation. Mm-hmm. And then that's where I went back. Last year, I launched a series from Eagleville Hospital, where I'm 27 years alumni to. And mm-hmm. I can't even begin to tell you, when I stood there last year on that stage, and it's a really big rehab, I had to do two things. Um, it, I, I can't even begin to tell you. I sat on the other side. I didn't think, like they said, When I was there all them years ago, someone came in, like me, and they shared. They said, look to the left and look to the right. One of you is going to die, and one of you is going to suffer the horrors of addiction. One of you is going to make it. I didn't like what they said, but I will tell you, I didn't think I was lucky enough to die. Mm -hmm. I surely didn't think I was going to make it, and I figured I was the one who was going to suffer the horrors of addiction. So to be standing there on that stage 27 years later, wow. it was a feeling inside that I couldn't even in a million years express. Mm-hmm. So from that uh, point uh, onward, I just uh, lost my train of thought.
0: <laughs> but um, So you were up there in front yes. of all of these people who were in that rehab program at that moment. And so they were looking up at you like as a role model as like, this is something that I can, if I work really hard, you know, I can try to achieve that.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, um, at one point with the ladies, they started, um, passing boxes of tissues around because I have to tell you. So, um, because of my head injury, Mm -hmm. everything I do takes triple effort I told uh-huh. you I would sit in that box for one test for four hours uh-huh. I would get a I would get a hundred and I would get all of the extra credit uh-huh. I had 4.0 my entire degree uh-huh. I didn't even know I was that smart <laughs> <laughs> but um, so um, when when uh, when I was standing up there uh, with my train of thought I built um, with my story, I put props in there, so it wasn't just me telling my story, uh-huh. it was I had built like like a little stage, so I had chains, I had, I have, I still have it, uh-huh. um, I was actually trying to get Chattanooga State to um, have somebody film it for me, so I don't, because I don't, I still yeah. have difficulties sometimes, and it's like, I'd like to get this and right. put it up there, right. but, you know,
0: but anyways, um, yeah, so... Uh, Wow. That's incredible to be up there. And yeah. To so, from, so
1: from there, at that event, I gave out um, over 200 copies of the 31-day recovery journal. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then that just launched it. And then I came back here. And uh, I had already made the connection there in Silverdale Detention Center, because the thing is, with the books, um, I gave them to friends, to friends in recovery, to uh, professionals, and mm-hmm. to treatment centers just to you know start getting this out there and mm-hmm. I've been doing all this footwork for it because I don't leave um I haven't gotten a promoter and all this other stuff. I haven't gone that route because it's like well first off I don't have the money to do that. I don't have a team. Mm-hmm. I have a will inside of me for the reco- for a person. I'm an advocate advocate for any person in mm-hmm. recovery or that wants to live a different way mm-hmm. and choose or chooses to or even if they don't so, so, because the books are for any person, that just drives me. So, I was able to get the books into uh, Silverdale, and then um, here at the Methadon Clinic, I was able to get the books in there, and I teach a class down there once a week, and I also give them the book there mm-hmm. as well. Um, it's my hopes now, because the books took off there in Silverdale, to get them, trying to get them on the commissary there, so mm-hmm. that, you know, so that the... the Inmates, people can buy the books for themselves, Right. you know, Mm -hmm. because there's no class in there or anything. You don't, the books, you can use them separately or together. You don't have to use them, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I designed that series Mm -hmm. for any question you have or any comment you have that you think that, oh, I can't, you can. Mm -hmm. You know, the book, book one is visuals. So... Um, you don't write in it. The three volumes is recovery journals, Mm -hmm. but that little book is the sum of all Mm -hmm. the meditations in all of the volumes and I designed it to be when you're troubled, Mm -hmm. okay, when you're bothered you thumb through it, it's like a pattern breaker, may have may have nothing to do with with what's going on with you, but Mm -hmm. it's a distraction and that's all we need sometimes is that one little moment and the premise of that was when I first got clean and sober you had two minutes to talk sense to me or else I was gone. Mm-hmm. And that's how that whole book is written. So one mm-hmm. page has nothing to do with the next page. Mm-hmm. You can read it from front to back. You can thumb through it. You right. can go through the table contents under the head ends, hurting, headed or too busy, and go through that way. You can just look at the pictures. I want you to look at the pictures. It's a puzzle. So look at the pictures. See if I'm talking to you. Notice the bridge that's behind us. Notice there's a crossroad. These mm-hmm. are things that, right. are, that um, are symbols in our recovery. You know in our paths in our roads you Mm -hmm. know we have to cross bridges we come to crossroads right you know we have difficulties or we talk to god we talk we contemplate we get mad at people Mm -hmm. so all them expressions are in right you know are shown i mean in there and i felt strongly to put the pictures because um you know people won't know me you know but to identify with a mm-hmm. face instead of, okay, here's just some words, and here's some pictures. Right, it's right. like, no, I'm a real person, and I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. You know, So I'm reaching across them pages. So through the journaling, you're writing the other half of the book. So it's like, hey, here's mm-hmm. how I feel, and here's how I was thinking. Right. Now you get to write how, you know, you can add to that um, meditation. You can build your own on the other side, and together we are writing a book. And the thing that I love about the book is that The book is designed for all economic classes, all genders, all cultures, all races, and all beliefs. Mm -hmm. And the way that that happens is because you get to write the other half of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you don't have to agree with me, but but from whatever we're going through in life and whatever them things are, we can be friends. You know, and we can see each other's point of view, Mm -hmm. and we can walk down the road, and we can write a book together. And I, I look forward to. other people that believe in different things, right in the other half, mm-hmm. because I'm still who I am. Right. I mean, I made sure we said I had a few other people help me go through the book to make sure that if I'm asking you questions, it's saying higher power,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay. And when I'm talking, I I'll just I always say just God. I'll say God or I'll say higher power. I intermix them, mm-hmm. but that's me talking. So you talk and you say what you want, and then you sign at the first page on page seven. You sign and it says I dedicate the book. And I say I dedicate it to God. You're given space. You dedicate it to whoever you want to. And then the party begins. <laughs> you know, then the friend now you can build them journals. You can build your own series. And yeah. that's the that's the last thing I would like to say about that series is the back page you sign, it says congratulations on your one of a kind book from their heart. And it encourages you to put it in a special place where you can see it and go on to the next volume. And you can do the volumes over and over again. I still have like eight books in manuscript mm-hmm. besides the ones that are already out there. Right. Um, I don't see them coming getting edited for another few years because I've got so much work to do right. with these. With these, but um, the, you know, a person, the, it's a now, it's a now series. So, say if you did volume one and then you did two and three, you could come back and do volume one again because you will always be in a different spot. Mm-hmm. So, them questions like. Some of them I read, and I was where I was at twenty years ago. Mm -hmm. And when I read it today before class, and I get my lesson together, I'm like, "Oh, I needed that," (laughs) you know. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, so it's like it's something that it's it keeps you into the present, and it helps that way. Mm -hmm. So I'm 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 so excited. I look at each day now. I said when I was in my fifties, I would edit the books, and this is how I would finish out my life. Mm -hmm. You know, bringing these books mainstream and doing things like I'm doing now because yeah. that's part of the process is the doors aren't open. People don't know who you are, uh-huh. you know, and, and you have to, you know, right. you have to come out of your shell all over again and say, Hey, you know, and you say, I have 27 years clean and sober. And you're like, well, you know, I'm not, in, what, what is recovery? People are right. like, I don't even know what that is. It's mm-hmm. like recovery. You get my car out of a ditch or what? <sighs> you know? And it's yeah. like, so you have to explain to people like, you know, I'm a recovering person. Uh You know, and, you know, but recovery from what? From anything, from whatever you get into. Uh So if it's my thing, is, you know, is it from a disability? Is it from a medical issue? Did you just get cancer? Did you, are you in hospice? What's your, you know, what's your issue? What's Uh your, maybe you're a happy person and you just want to write a book. Uh You don't have to have anything wrong, you know? So it's something to where I am happy to be able to, um, Reach that person, like when I'm down at the methadone clinic, I don't, I can't, I can't change your road. That may be your road for the rest of your life. Maybe you may be on medical, uh, medicine assisted treatment. I don't know, uh-huh. but I do know that we can still reach our hearts. And because when I was a junkie, when I was out there, I felt my daughter's love. I felt that that day. Uh-huh. So. We're still there, mm-hmm. but we don't know what anybody's walk is. It's not for us to say what their recovery is and how it is, but it is our responsibility to love one another,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay? Just where we're at, and if where you're at is a devastating place and you don't want to come out of that, I am still responsible mm-hmm. to be as kind as I can to you mm-hmm. and maybe kick you in the butt,
0: too. I mean, you know, I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. It's like, you
1: know, we, we help each other that, right. the ways that right. we do.
0: yeah. Uh, so what do you see what do you what are your dreams for the next few years or so? What would you like to see happen?
1: well of course I have a vision with this where I'd like to see things going for now my focus is you know to get the series out into mainstream to do some articles you know get let people know that this is here uh, and because it's I will spend every day that I have just Doing my best to reach people. So mm-hmm. I don't put the money into advertising or anything. I put it into the person's hands. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, if I say, I, you know, my friends and people tell me all the time, stop giving everything away. It's like, okay. And then <laughs> what do I do? Here's a book. Here's a book. I did it the other day. It's like, I can't, it's like, I, I don't think of, you know, that will take care of itself. Uh-huh. But my focus is, you know, I'm going to get it out into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. I have a vision of, you know, school, some different things that are further down the road. And believe me, I have to rank, pull it in Mm -hmm. because I will try to manifest that. But the thing is like with RTC, the lesson with that was I had too much. Yeah. So I'm older, hopefully a little (laughs) wiser. Uh (laughs) So I'll keep it to this for this next year established. Right. um, You know, get strong in what I'm doing, headed, and um, and I'm excited doing it. Like, I was excited to do the hands across the bridge. I can't tell you, holding everybody's hand, spanning that bridge and saying the serenity prayer. I've been saying it for 27 years in meetings and with, you know, and at home and different places. So to have that unity and have it, you know, people in recovery from all walks, you know, you it's not just one thing, it was, yeah. you know, um, different institutions, different people, it was family, it was everybody, because yeah. it's, it's a family thing, recovery, yeah. and the main thing that I would like to say also is, you know, when people come into um, recovery, or their family members, or different people, uh-huh. it, you know, we need to understand that as long as we're still breathing, we're always going to have a choice, so things might be going good for five years, five months, five days, it, do, it doesn't change that we still need to do them same things. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in recovery for 27 plus years now. I still have a sponsor. I still go to meetings. I still write. I still interact. Mm-hmm. And um, and I haven't touched a drug or alcohol in all them years. Wow. So what's my problem? No, it's not a problem. This is a way of life that mm-hmm. I choose to live. But yes, I could make a bad choice tomorrow. You know, I still have problems. So I know how to take care of myself. So we need to understand really as a society that, you know, it's not that, you know, I'm not saying whether anybody's sick, that's not for me to say, it is, you know, as long as we're still breathing, we can choose a road of recovery.
0: Yeah.
1: No matter what that age is. Yeah. No matter how long that's been. And that's for any person, for whatever your issue may be.
0: Right. So. Right. So where can people find you or can they reach, reach you? Um. I have a shirt now that says
1: recoveryjournals.org. I know. I saw Uh, it the other day. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, yeah, um, that's the website, recoveryjournals.org. And that's an interactive website. So we're building that as well to where it has my story up there. Uh, It has some of, it has like little summaries of the classes that I've been doing. And that is from journal one. We're going uh, going cover to cover. They're just little snippets. You can pause it and answer the questions. Uh, Then I have a blog up there that I try to keep up with at least once a week. It's just that there's too much work to do everything, Mm -hmm. and as things grow, that will grow too. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, they can reach me there. They can get all of the books. They can start. I will say you begin the series. This is very, very important. You begin the series with journal volume one, long term or short term. I'm going to tell you, long term. (laughs) Short-term is good for institutions, or if, if uh, you know, if, you know, that has a place, like that one was really for institutions for a fast turnover, mm-hmm. like a detox or something, just enough to capture a person, and then they have to go and get the rest of the books, you know, because the book is, the, the books, the volumes are a lifetime series. Mm-hmm. But uh, you start with volume one. But having said that, if you came across volume three, you could do volume three, because one book doesn't have to, mm-hmm. you don't need right. to have done one to do the other, but I'm telling you, you want to start with
0: <laughs> volume one. And you have a YouTube channel, right? Yeah, you can find any of the
1: videos also up on YouTube. Okay, and, and they're, on under, your they're on yeah, your website. Yeah, they're on the website. And but we'll if link you, to that. If, yeah, if you just went under Veronica Slack, just put okay. my name in there, I'm sure. Okay.
0: Yeah, Not and, and I'll put I'll put links to um, your website and anything else you want to send me. If you have like Instagram or Facebook or any anything like that, you can send me that, and I'll put all of that in the, in the yeah. Show everything's notes. under
1: Veronica Slack. So if anybody ever wants, you know, even uh-huh. on Facebook, Veronica Slack, I just yeah, you know,
0: okay, yeah, <laughs> good, good. Well, is there anything else that you want to say? Um, any words of encouragement or anything before we? We wrap up <laughs> well
1: yeah I would say this in my story I always say that when I was in that transition I felt inside like I was a diamond in the rough I didn't know who I was I didn't know where I was going um, but I knew I had a desire to want to live differently so to people I would say um, we are all diamonds in the rough being refined in some way so no matter what we come from, no matter what gender, what culture, what race. Um,
2: yeah.
1: We all are on on this road together. So as long as you're still breathing, you can always choose a road of recovery.
0: Okay, I like that. And I've that. enjoyed this. I've yeah, enjoyed this. I've enjoyed this too. This has been great. Thank you. I'm so glad that we met. Me too. <laughs> so, all right.